You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review's senior editor, Daniel Horowitz. And along with co-host Joe Koss, they break down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. Late in the week here, it feels like this week has been so, so long. Thursday afternoon, and oh my gosh, I am just tired as anything. Um, So much to talk about. I want to go back to some of our style when we initially started this podcast. And usually we develop a a thesis, a theme, hone in on something specific. I'm going to do a rundown of all sorts of different issues just to give you an update on what I'm hearing and try to pack in as much as I can in the time we have. And I just want to preface that by saying, you know, those of us that actually have affirmative beliefs and knowledge of what is going on, what we should be doing on so many important issues on foreign policy, on domestic policy, fiscal, taxes, spending, healthcare, immigration, you know, there's not enough time to even give over enthusiastically all the things we believe in. Yet what's amazing, there's a report out where GOP consultants are basically telling their people to go and run against the media. What's going to be their closing argument for 2018? The media. They're going to run against the media. I want you folks to think about that. You have the House, the Senate, the White House, and you think that's going to fly with the voters? I mean, that That is so beta. And that's why I'm not going to give you guys a new thesis for this, uh, you know, this podcast. I'm just going to work with some of our existing principles that we're pointing out and, you know, following up with what we said last time. That we have so much we want to do and so much that the administration is betraying amidst a couple of things that they're doing that's good, but often that's voided out by the significant policy outcomes within those spheres of policy or those issues. And if we don't get in his face, he's not going to change it. That's what we need to run on. He is very sensitive to it. And, and this earlier this week, I know this piece resonated with a lot of you. I laid out a full agenda of about eight bullet points on national security, homeland security, immigration that are winning issues, easy to message, laid out how Trump should message it on a, in a, in a televised address and how he should lay it out to congressional leaders and make specific demands using a lot of the news cycle going on to, to talk about that. And I don't, I don't see any of that happening. No signs of that happening. Twitter. You know, Twitter is not leadership. And gosh, we're ta- I, I will not talk about Comey and Russia. I hate that. There is so much going on that is important that will determine the fate of, of our country, of our system of government, our national security. And that's all we, we talk about. And if you want to get that off the news, if Trump really is so disturbed by the Russian investigation to the point that he's now ticked off at Sessions for re- recusing himself, evidently, you know the biggest way to get that off the headlines? Follow some of our advice and make it all about the issues. Believe me, you'll get the left riled up on on that, but at least it's on ground and territory that's more favorable to us and more defensible. 
rather than talking about Comey all day. You know, a congressman told me, a friend of mine, that the president himself called him personally to congratulate him on what a great interview he gave on a cable show on a, on a given issue. And, and that proves, my, and, and this, you know, this congressman told me, man, if I would have only seen your agenda piece, I would have given it over to the president. And that proves our entire point. This president is different than anyone else. And there's a lot of bad to it. And there's a lot of good to it in the sense that, you know, he doesn't go with the flow necessarily but he will by default if you don't get in his face but if you get in his face he he doesn't get his news from you know intelligence briefings and uh you know his administration officials which he should he gets it from cable news but there is one benefit to that in the sense that if we get our guys on there and if people like Russian and hannity would would be saying you must do this on the debt ceiling do this on health care do this on immigration i don't like what you're doing with israel i don't like what some of what you're doing on foreign policy is good but a lot of it is voided out by bad things and we're going to talk about all these things he's not going to see it but, it but 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 if you do that he will see it and he is sensitive to conservative criticism so i just wanted to follow up on that and just how stupid it is for conservatives to only focus on the media so let's go through some of these issues now, I want to start off just with giving a shout out to a dear friend of mine, Russ Vote, who stood before two committees to be confirmed as deputy OMB director, and they just brutalized him, went after him personally for writings he's had, um, went after his Christian faith uh, for stating the obvious about Islam, and uh, you know he held his ground. You know, unlike most of these other confirmation hearings where the Republicans where the guy, the nominee, just gives into whatever the Democrats want. He he held his ground. He didn't agree to a single liberal premise on budget or any other issues. This this is the best pick of the Trump administration. He's very much responsible for the good budgeting you're going to see. But again, this is exactly why you need to criticize Trump when he goes along with liberal things in order to give the good guys sacrificing themselves, and which it really is. You know, it's easy for me to sit here and say what I'm saying, but this guy has a paper trail of writings like me, and he was willing to stand for Senate confirmation. And by the way, he wasn't just critical of Democrats and, and uh, you know, Islamists. He's critical of, of Republicans, including Republicans on these committees, committees as well. So, you know... There are people willing to sacrifice and actually try to affect change. That's why we need to back them up against the liberals in the administration. So with that, in that vein, let's start with the debt ceiling. You know, debt ceiling is coming up. Debt ceiling was created in World War I as a means of saying that even during wartime, if we're going to service more debt, we have to make sure this doesn't grow legs and we're going to create a ceiling on it. And yet... 59 times since the 70s, we just increase it and usually just reflexively without doing anything. And Democrats always, when they're in power, they say, well, we can't let us default. You have to raise the debt ceiling. So they make the problem the debt ceiling instead of the debt. The problem is the debt, right? The debt ceiling is the enforcement mechanism. It's like saying, I'm scared of, um, you know, it's like blaming uh, the the cops for a, a wave in crime. I mean, the problem is not the cops. The problem is the criminals. So I have a whole piece out on this explaining the importance of this. And yet Mnuchin and Gary Cohn, the liberals, they are demanding that Congress just raise the debt ceiling without using that as leverage to enact some of his budget. Because if you don't do that, your budget is meaningless. That's the only way 
you are ever going to enact it. So, you know, Mick Mulvaney, who has his own issues, but at least he's relatively more conservative than the rest of the administration. Um, he is the budget director. Russ Vote is going to be the deputy director. But he's the one that does all the hard work. Uh, Mulvaney is saying, no, we need to have structural reforms. And basically, Trump has indicated that he's siding with Mnuchin. So, I mean, again, this example, oh, look, Trump has a great budget. But then when it actually comes time for the policy outcome, he he screwed us over on on his first budget, did nothing to ask for his um, budget request and, and just signed the Democrat bill into law. There's already signs that they're giving up on the next year's fiscal budget by doing an omnibus right away on that, you know, within a month. The debt ceiling is the only time, and it's so easy to explain to the American people. It's such a winner. You say, like any family budget, if you're having issues, you don't just take out another line of credit indefinitely without, at least in the, you know, in the short run, saying, until and unless I have some sort of fiscal plan to ensure that this is the last time I raise the debt ceiling, so I take out another line of credit, I'm not going to do it. And in the meantime, I'm going to prioritize my payments. So what, what, that, uh, what that requires is a two-pronged approach. Number one, you, you, again, you give a televised address, and he, he should do this every week. Do a Facebook Live from the West Wing, from the Oval Office. Say, I have inherited a debt crisis. Explain some of the real-life consequences of it and the way people could understand how it's weighing down economic growth, how it's going to crush us over the next 20 years. And say, I'm confronted with an opportunity here that there is now a debt ceiling. This is leverage with control of all three branches, how we're going to say, look, we might have to raise the debt ceiling one more time, but we're not going to do it immediately and reflexively without getting structural reforms. And, and I lay out some of these ideas. That I, I, we don't have enough time to delve into each issue particular, so I'm going to link to especially the, the items that I have an article for. Um, but I just wanted to give you that overview. He could do that. Even with even when Republicans just controlled the House in 2010, 2011, they got the Budget Control Act. They got some spending cuts. The notion that Trump's going to ask for a clean debt ceiling, which is really a dirty debt, and get less than we got when we had control of just the House? I mean, again, this is not enough to blame the deep state and congressional Republicans. Yeah, we know that they are legitimate problems. But what's a bigger problem is the shallow state, Trump's own appointees and him going along with them. Instead of having leadership and demanding cuts from Congress, he's demanding them raising the debt ceiling. So this this is this is one very big problem. Now, because I don't know if we're going to have time to get to some of the other domestic policy stuff, uh, certainly Obamacare, I want to get to Dodd-Frank which is a very, very important, um, certainly not going to be in the news with today's fiasco focused on the meaningless Comey hearings. But I do want to get to foreign policy no matter what. Some of the other stuff we could put off to next week. We also have some articles and some other stuff. But I haven't written on Cutter. And this is not just about Cutter. This is about the entire Middle East. And standing at the nexus of a pivotal moment where we could actually affect an America-first policy. Um, not just a one-off policy, but an entire realignment in the Middle East that would be beneficial to, to our interests 
rather than always serving the interests of our enemies. And, you know, again, as always in rhetoric, Trump stumbles upon certain truths and sounds pretty good. But the policy outcomes of his administration are very conflicting and are not seizing the moment now. They are not seizing this opportunity. Now, what opportunity do I mean? So a lot of you have heard about the general news, you know, even with all the stupid news, you hear a little bit of the substance of the Arab nations, the Sunni Arab nations, primarily the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, Yemen, whatever that even means. I guess it means the Hadi government, the small portion that he controls of the country. Maldives, obviously Egypt, uh, the Sisi government, basically disowning Qatar. All of a sudden, just disowning Qatar. Expelling their diplomats, even expelling some immigrants, refusing to take in their immigrants. Literally treating their own Sunni Arab uh, former partners worse than we treat the Islamic refugees. In other words, they're actually a good uh, example. The way they're treating Qatar immigrants is the way we should look upon the Middle East um, in general. But, you know, where is this coming from? What's going on here? And, and why should we care about it? And why is there an opportunity here? You know, the Middle East used to be very simple. It used to be the entire Arab world was pretty much united. And, and that's a very big oversimplification, but they're united against, you know, Israel and America. They hated hated us, they hated the Israelis, and that was very, very simple. What's going on now is there's really three factions. None of them are good. They're all our enemy. We should not align with any of them. But what we should do is the fact that there are schisms between the three and they're practically at war with each other, we should take advantage of that schism to play them against each other for our interests rather than having them play us into their game for their interests. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But first, we have to break down the different players. So when I say there's three players, there's... The Shias, led by Iran, the broader Iranian hegemony. That is an existential threat to us and our, our interests. Then there are the Sunni Arab states. Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the other Gulf Emirates. Then there are the Sunni Salafist terror groups, NGOs, organizations. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Muslim Brotherhood, etc. Again, all three are against us, except I would just say, in terms of the category of the Sunni nation-states, I would say Egypt, under the stewardship of Sisi, is one where we could legitimately have somewhat of a partnership and have shared interests. But no one else is an ally. Let's be very clear. Saudi Arabia is not an ally. It's an enemy. Albeit, given their strife against some of the other factions, there is what to exploit. So what's going on here basically is that the Sunni Arab states, who used to use Hamas and the the Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Qaeda, all the terror groups against us, They used to be in bed with them, and they still are to a certain extent, as I'm going to explain. They are now terrified because the whole Arab Spring, the whole 
Salafist Muslim Brotherhood led insurgency that led to ISIS and other, you know, growth of Al Qaeda splinter groups elsewhere. That now has destabilized the region and threatens their very existence. And then obviously, can, somewhat connected, but mainly different, and, and really the more predominant fear is Iran. Um, Iran is, is not just a nuclear threat to them, but really conventional threat, uh, start, starting to impose almost a blockade around the Straits of Hormuz and the Persian Gulf, and then um, the Straits uh, to the Red Sea on the other end. They have major problems from Iran. They have bigger problems than we do from Iran. So we have, the, we have the leverage over them. Now, what the Saudis are, and some of their allies, they're kind of like snake handlers that forever shoves, you know, were in bed with the snakes because they threw the snakes on our lawn, on Israel's lawn as well. Now, since the Arab insurgencies have been overthrown governments, so now the snakes have turned on them, and they don't like it. So... This is where Qatar comes into play. Where does Qatar? Qatar and Turkey. Turkey is really not in the news, but it should be in the news. It's a bigger deal. Qatar and Turkey are are really a fourth category. Qatar and Turkey are Sunni states, but they stand at the nexus of the entire Sunni-Shia terror. So they're somewhat allies with Iran, or they tolerate Iran and work with Iran, and then they also work with the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas and the Sunni terror networks and fund them. Now, in the case of Qatar, they fund everyone. They fund ISIS. They fund Al-Qaeda. They fund Hamas. Hamas is based there after they got kicked out of Damascus. Muslim Brotherhood. This is why I always say Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood is the glue that holds the jihad together. Because even though Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood are Sunni, but they're fun, you know, Hamas is funded out of, out of Iran. And um, they're very bipartisan. Even in the West, most Western Muslims, you know, living in America, living in Europe, are Sunni. And the Muslim Brotherhood controls their infrastructure, but they service the Shias as well. They're very bipartisan. The Muslim Brotherhood wants to wage jihad against the West. So they're, they're the uniters. So Qatar wants to get along with everyone. And that used to work for them. But now, Saudi Arabia and certainly Egypt and, and, and uh, all the Emirates, they're ticked off at them because you guys are helping both Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood, which are destabilizing and threatening us. So they're ticked off, and that's why they're going to war against Qatar. You also have Bahrain thrown in there because keep in mind, Bahrain is a, a Sunni kingdom but the majority of the population is Shia. So they're really concerned about being overthrown. Um, and that's why they don't appreciate what Qatar's doing. And, and Turkey is really the same thing. Turkey is, is Sunni, but they you know, have diplomatic relationships with, with Iran. And they are, they, you know, Erdogan is the Muslim Brotherhood. So now the, the Gulf Emirates haven't gone after Turkey. They're too scared of them, and, and they don't directly intersect with them as much as Qatar does. But the point here is we have an amazing opportunity where the Saudis and all the Arab countries are saying the Muslim Brotherhood is a terror group, and they're cutting off Mo the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas. So we have an opportunity to kick Qatar, and I would argue add in Turkey while we're at it, and the Muslim Brotherhood while they're down. 
Does this mean to ally with Saudi Arabia? Of course not. Keep in mind the Saudis are still funding Al-Qaeda and Nusra in Syria. You know, they, they like having it off their lawn. They still fund their own subversion and poison on our shores. So Trump initially stumbled across the truth and went to Twitter and attacked Qatar and piled on, which was good. And the media attacked him. Oh, you're going after them when we have our largest military installation there, which again is dumb because all these countries need us more than we need need them. But so, hey, isn't this good for Trump? Well, yeah, but like anything else, then Tillerson and Mattis go and and, and try to tamp it down and say, oh, we got to make peace with Qatar and, and work out a deal here and everything. So, you know, they're doing their thing. But also Trump's entire policy is inconsistent. Because if you're going to ally with Saudi Arabia against Qatar because of the Muslim Brotherhood, why are we not designating the Muslim Brotherhood as a terror group? That is an executive order sitting on Trump's desk. He could do that right now. Moreover, why is Trump allying with Erdogan? It makes no sense. He stands at the nexus of what Saudi Arabia is fighting in Qatar. So I pointed this out many times that because and look, you know, things that are more obviously mutually exclusive are lost on Trump. Let's face it. I mean, he doesn't get, you know, health care. He praises Canada's health care system while bashing Obamacare. So he certainly doesn't get the nuances of the Middle East if, if no one's there to explain it to him. And, and there is nobody good in this administration on foreign policy. Foreign policy is awful. I mean, you got Sessions and Pruitt and a couple of good guys on domestic policy. Um, you really don't have that on foreign policy. But what's happening is we're getting all of the liabilities of cozying up to the Saudis, hence getting ensnared in Yemen, giving them an arms deal in return for them funding more subversion on our soil, throwing Israel under the bus at their behest. But we're not getting the benefits, i.e. going after the Muslim Brotherhood, abrogating the Iran deal, you know, submitting it to the Senate for ratification. And that's the thing. Like, oh, Daniel, well... This is great to ally with the Saudis because it's, it sticks to Iran. We don't need to ally with the Saudis to stick it to Iran. We should stick it to Iran to stick it to Iran without allying with the Saudis. And we should hold that over the Saudis. See what I mean? Do the opposite. Let's get all the benefits of their schism and use, each other against, use them against each other rather than getting us involved on their behalf and not really getting the benefits out of it. Because... We're not going after Iran because we're not abrogating the, the Iran deal. And we are not, and, and we're still s- serving as this Shia Air Force in, in Iraq. We are taking back Mosul from ISIS on behalf of, um, you know, what's his name? Soleimani's uh, allied uh, Shia Hezbollah-style groups, which are you know, just as vicious as ISIS, by the way in terms of committing war crimes. So that's the thing. We're being played by both the Saudis and the Iranians rather than playing them against each other. The answer is not to do the opposite of what Obama did. Oh, he allied with Iran. We're going to ally with Saudi Arabia. No, because it's not like Saudi Arabia is coming clean. It's not like they've repented. They're doing they're They're still doing their stuff. They're throwing snakes on our lawn. They just don't want the snakes on their lawn. But that's the point. We, we shouldn't ally with them. We shouldn't have the arms deal. We shouldn't throw Israel under the bus for them. We shouldn't get involved in the Yemeni civil war. And we should 
pass a law barring any soon, uh, Saudi funding of universities and mosques on our soil, as we should with Turkey. But what we should do is pile on and say, hey, you know, if the Saudis are saying the Muslim bros are bad, you know, for their purposes, Trump should follow through and designate them as a terror group. This is the difference between allying with one of your enemies against the other, which is a bad thing to do, versus playing them both against each other to our benefit. And, you know, this is the thing. Trump needs to call for punishing Qatar. He needs to go after the Muslim Brotherhood. He needs to go after the PLO, which is working with Hamas. And he needs to call... And the biggest thing is we need to get our air bases out of Turkey and be done with it and then call for the expulsion of Turkey from NATO. It would be a parallel. This is the perfect opportunity. You know, you have the Arab alliance kicking Qatar out of their alliance, and then you have the Western NATO alliance. Perfect opportunity to kick Turkey out, which is very parallel because they have the same problems as Qatar, even worse. They're even more uh, problematic than Qatar. Turkey stands at the nexus of everything. Again, they're all bad. The Sunni states, the Sunni terror groups, and Iran. They're all our our enemies. But Turkey, Qatar, Hamas, and the Muslim Brotherhood stand at the nexus of those three. They work together with everyone. Whereas, you know, Saudi Arabia and Iran and Egypt, they're on opposite sides. Um, They're the glue that holds them together. So, So Qatar, Muslim Brotherhood, and Turkey, that's really what we should go after. We should go after Iran. We should go after Saudi. We go after all three. But use soft power to do that. Rather than using hard power, hard resources, the lives of our troops, uh, you know, billions of dollars in, in wars, d- fighting on behalf of the Saudis in Yemen, fighting on behalf of, of the Iranians in Iraq, and fighting on behalf of everyone except for ourselves in Syria. W- which brings me also to Iran. You know, the president also, again, his rhetoric is good. Um, everyone appreciated his statement on the ISIS terror attack in Iran. And again, it's kind of complicated, ISIS terror attack. It's kind of like the guys that commit terror attacks in the West after they trained with ISIS. You know, they're Iranians who committed the terror attack after training with ISIS. Was it a direct ISIS attack? I mean, that's kind of semantics. But Trump basically put out a statement and said, hey, you know, we certainly agree for innocence, but uh, you guys reaped what you sowed. And, and that's good. But the problem is, then why don't our actions and our policies reflect that statement? Why are we doing their bidding and saving their rear ends in Iraq? See, ISIS and Iran are very complicated. And Al-Qaeda, too. Remember, Again, what I'm trying to show you is this Sunni-Shia split is not as clear-cut as you think it is. It's clear-cut in terms of a lot of the Sunni nation-states against Iran. That, that's a clear schism. Although, again, Qatar and Turkey are Sunni, but through the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas, they work with them. So that's, there is some bipartisanship there. And even with ISIS and al-Qaeda... You know, so Al Qaeda was harbored by by Iran for years. As far as ISIS, well, Daniel, what do you mean? Didn't they just commit a terror attack against Iran? Yes, ISIS is kind of a one way relationship. ISIS hates Iran theologically, but Iran kind of appreciates 
wink and nod at what ISIS is doing because of what America is doing. See, we're generally protecting Iran against ISIS by serving as their buffer and taking Iraq back from ISIS for them. That's why that's partly why they don't care. And once they don't care, they actually appreciate ISIS because ISIS is a forward advancing guard for them. Because notice what happens. There's Sunni territory that Iran couldn't really take naturally. But with ISIS out of control and taking them over and then the people, you know, don't like them. No one likes ISIS uh, just because they're too draconian for everyone. So by by the U.S. military winning it back on behalf of the Shia militias, it seamlessly jujitsu's. ISIS is kind of like their big jujitsu. It seamlessly brings that land over or under the umbrella of Iranian hegemony. So, you know, the best way to stick it to Iran is to actually just sit back and do nothing with ISIS at this point. They're on the decline. Let ISIS be their problem, especially in Iraq. And then you're going to see a difference. Play all of these people against each other. None of them are forced. We should not ally with any of them except to a certain extent with Sisi and Egypt. None of them are our allies. But we should use them against each other. And one example is we, should, we shouldn't join with Saudi Arabia per se, but we should join with them to designate the Muslim Brother as a terror group and frankly to put pressure on Turkey. But, but again, Tillerson and Mattis are going to do the opposite. This is the opportunity. It's not too late for Trump to change his policies, to stop being hypocritical. I mean, the, the love for Turkey is the biggest hypocrisy around. And the promotion of the PLO. You know, why not use this hard power to say, hey, Saudis, you know, I, you know about that Iran thing there? Uh, we would hate Iran to really uh, hurt you guys. Um, you're going to shut up about Israel. Um, you're going to take in some refugees, too. And you know what? Um, Turkey's out of NATO. I mean, there's a lot of things we could be doing. Instead of kissing up to them, make them kiss up to us. That's what an America first foreign policy is. And, you know, again, I think if someone were to sit down and explain this to Trump, it would resonate with him. But until then, you're going to see policy outcomes that are very different than his rhetoric because, again, it's the equivalent of I hate Obamacare, but I love Canadian health care. Oh, uh, um, I hate terrorism, and this is a big problem with Islam. Oh, but... Uh, hey, Saudis, come fund Wahhabism on our soil. Oh, I'm not going to designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terror group. Um, oh, I hate Iran, but uh, let's go and you know help them out in Iraq and not abrogate the Iran deal. We need a vision. Well, this is what conservatives should be talking about. This is the opportunity, but we stand alone. We're really running out of time. Um Obamacare, I mean, I'll have more updates on that. Basically, the Senate is taking the excrement sandwich of the House and turning it into a maggot-covered vomit, just making it even worse. It's basically making Obamacare popular again. I agree with Mark Levin that at this point, we should just evacuate. It's not Sadly, it's not being repealed. We just need to separate ourselves from this, stand for what we stand for. I think we need to work with states on supply-side reforms that bypass insurance. I'll... I'll deal with that more in depth with some articles and, and future podcasts. I want to just get to one more issue, and that's Dodd-Frank. The House of Representatives. Yay. 
finally, after five months of being in complete power, they're doing one good thing. Um, because pretty much the only good committee chairman, Financial Services Committee Chairman Jeb Henserling, is somewhat of a conservative. He does have some beliefs. He is passing a partial repeal of Dodd-Frank today. It's coming to the House floor. We're going to score this. It's it's a good bill. Now, to be clear, it doesn't – not only doesn't it fully repeal Dodd-Frank, it doesn't even fully repeal the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the, the literally the most – the director, which is Richard Cordray – is the most powerful person other than the president. It's totally unconstitutional. Fourth branch of government. They have the full, this is the Obamacare financial services. They have the full regulatory and enforcement power. So they have legislative, judicial to a certain extent, and executive powers, not subject to congressional appropriations. It's run by the Federal Reserve, not subject to the removal of the by the president. And they could promulgate any regulation on mortgages, credit, student loans, I mean, all banking, all aspects of banking services. It is locking up credit in this country. It's not a sexy issue. But this is the other big destruction, aside from Obamacare, from the Obama administration. When you look at the 1% GDP growth, this is a big part of it. Um, Just like energy is the lifeblood of the economy, um, banking, financial services, the lifeblood of credit, entrepreneurship, I mean, that has been locked up. It's got to end. So, again, this bill, I mean, it keeps it in place, but at least puts it under congressional control. It subjects it to the RAINS Act once they pass the RAINS Act that they could nullify the um, or that they have to approve the regulations of CFPB. I have a piece out. I don't I don't have enough time to get into the details. I'm going to link to it in the show notes explaining the details. But the lesson I want to bring out here is. Well, there's several lessons. First off, they're not repealing Obamacare. They're not doing real tax reform. And you know how I feel. I've said this many times. Taxes is not the issue of our time anyway. No good's going to come out of that issue. This is the one clean issue where we have a little bit of industry on our side for their purposes, but it coincides to a certain extent with our interests. Um, it's not. There's no dependency like you have in healthcare. So it's very achievable. This is something that you could do by you know bicamerally in a few weeks, pass the Senate, have the president sign, and it could actually have more um, influence on economic growth, more effect on economic growth than any tax reform. It really would. But it's going to die in the Senate. So even the few things you can get the House to do, the Senate is just – it's not going anywhere. So this is another issue conservatives should be in the faces of McConnell with. But I just want to add one final lesson. Again, I support this bill. It's good. And unlike with healthcare, where you can't half-ass it, you can't – a half-baked repeal actually makes things worse um, because just the way insurance is. Uh, in terms of this, you know, look, I'll take a half a loaf. This is a genuine half a loaf. It will make things good. But I just want to note that isn't it interesting that even in a messaging bill that they don't plan on getting anywhere, and this is the best thing they're doing, it's only half repeal of part of Dodd-Frank. I just want to show you the difference between the two parties, how inexorably we're moving to the left. When the left gets into power, they erase the Reagan legacy. Done. 
because you could always erase the lack of government intervention by intervening. But once you intervene, there's ne no matter how harmful, no matter how bad, no matter how new it is, like, you know, we're not going to get rid of 60, 70 year old programs for the most part, but this should be wiped clean. No, even even aspirational build. This is an aspirational bill. It's not going anywhere, sadly. It's only a partial repeal. There's, the CFPB is still going to be there if you had a Democrat president and Democrat Congress in the future. This bill will have very limited effects because they'll still promulgate the regulations and Congress and the president, president won't rein them in, as opposed to if you actually got rid of it now, they would downright have to repass it. Um, again, it's a complicated issue, a lot going on here. Anyway, we're running out of time. Please support our sponsors, support our allies. Get your CRTV subscription, 89 bucks a year with promo code Horowitz, um, as well as supporting Birch Gold, you know, <laughs> with banking going to hell in a handbasket. Gold is always going to be a reliable hedge against inflation until the government regulates it, but until now they have not. Diversify your portfolio. Get educated on this first. And that's why Birch Gold, you go to birchgold.com forward slash CR, get your 15 page guide um, how to invest in gold. Um, wouldn't throw your money into it. I'm talking about just a part of it. Um, that's what I'm doing to diversify my portfolio. And you're also supporting conservatives while you're at it. We have so much more going on so much we could talk about aside from comey 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 the media the media the media and the best i can do is get the truth out to you guys and as much as i can speak to members of congress that are willing to listen members of the administration we'll see what we can do but but we have we have many many more issues to talk about i mean refugees keeping obama's amnesty you know kelly was out doing that again the iran deal israel embassy and israel policy um, the moratorium on on immigration and shambles from the courts, judicial amnesty, judicial reform, um, catch and release policies, <laughs> budget betrayals. There's a lot more to talk about. Make CR your one-stop shop. Until next time, God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.